Welcome to the second annual lecture in neuroethics. And we're extremely pleased to have as our speaker this year Professor Georges Moll from the Deor Institute for Research and Education uh, in, from Brazil. Uh, Georges was one of the very first to use neuroenergy, functional neuroenergy, to study uh, the neural basis of model cognition and since has published many of the seminar, seminar articles in this area. And he will present his workshops tonight, and he will be speaking more specifically about neuroenergy evidence for the neural basis of uh, moral sentiments, pro-social and antisocial. Thank you very much, um, Guy and Julian, for this kind invitation. For me, it's an honor to be here uh, talking to you. Um, I hope to um, put some interesting ideas. And um, uh, as you see, my work is a, is a very experimental one. Uh, and of course, you try to make it conceptually palatable and uh, make sense to a larger uh, audience. But of course, there will be a, a lot of technical stuff, and I hope it not to burden you too much. But since I'm I'm an um, incorrectable experimentalist, um, uh, that's a bias that you see that here. So please do not. Um, I don't feel uncomfortable in interrupting me in the case if either my Brazilian English is, doesn't allow doesn't allow you to understand, or uh, if if I'm too hermetic in some, um, at some point, um, you can interrupt me. Although I, I think it's uh, if we have questions at the end, it could work uh, better. Um, so I will present uh, some. I'll cover some of the earlier studies we did trying to address very complicated issues, how the brain represents um, uh, morality. It's, it's a very broad question, but I think in the, in the, in the past decades, uh, uh, we have advanced, advanced uh, significantly to, uh, towards the same. Of course, this is just the beginning of the path. Uh, uh, it's very preliminary work, I must say. Uh, but we covered the, our initial work to, just to give you a more, a more like a chronological idea also of how we've been thinking uh, and, and focus more on the more recent evidence uh, for the neural basis of, of prosocial and social behavior presenting also illustrating that with some clinical studies in patients. So this is just the outline. So in the first part I'll cover uh, this more uh, conceptual the issue of morality, then revise um, um, the functional imaging in some of the lesion studies, which point to uh, which brain regions are and how they 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 are assembled into, to to uh, enable morality. Then I cover the altruism and decision making, some paradigms and decision uh, paradigms, and uh, some patient studies. And at the very end, uh, I covered. Um, uh, um, a topic that we've been working for only uh, one year now. It's a very, very uh, initial thing, but I think it's a very interesting thing, uh, which is brain decoding, how you can decode brain states uh, and brain states related to, to morality and to moral emotions. So uh, it is clear that uh, we are moral creatures. We have cared a lot about moral issues. But morality didn't appear from out of the blue in our species. Morality evolved uh, from several uh, proto-morality, uh, if you wish, 
that can be observed in several other social species. For example, in several primates, uh, they show complex um, social behavior, such as forming coalitions, um, sharing foods, and keeping a score of cooperation, um, having reciprocity rules. But it is in humans that morality evolved to, you know, its most complex uh, state. Um, that the biological, probably the, the last biological major change in our species occurred in the upper Paleolithic period um, around 80 to 100,000 years ago. But after that, um, there's a big discussion also about how the biological nature interacts with this, the civilization uh, and the forming of social values adopted by you know, social groups and how they interacted uh, to bring about the, our present moral nature. So in, in humans, we observe these very complex um, uh, moral uh, manifestations such as symbolic thinking and divisional labor, economic exchange, the development of uh, cultural norms. Uh, it's not surprising then uh, that the brain sizes in humans uh, uh, suffered a huge increase in terms of volume uh, from the earlier uh, hominid species uh, to the modern humans, say from 400 um, cc to uh, 1.5 liters of brain capacity, the volume of the brain. It's a very costly organ. It consumes 20% of our energy in the resting state. Um, so we need powerful brains actually to, to, do, to be able to be moral. Of course, nothing, uh, our brain is not doing only morality, but it's, it's, a, it's a core um, phenomenon for our nature. So we humans, we care about lots of types of rewards and motivations which are uh, on the base of our immediate interests. Uh, however, our species uh, is unique in terms of caring about very complex social and moral feelings. Um, many of them, so we're able to <coughs> admire or to engage into actions which are far from, uh, far from, um, uh, from uh, subserving like uh, our uh, immediate interests. Some, some, some of them very complicated, for example, um, attaching to football uh, teams, for example, is a very, very strange thing, isn't it? Or uh, religious symbols, or and whatsoever music. That's for those who don't know. Stone uh, Jobim and Vinicius de Moraes, the father of bossa nova. Um, so morality from a scientific perspective. So our take on on addressing morality from a scientific perspective is very different from the philosophical perspective, which which aims to um, define which are the universal principles that should guide um, human conduct. So which is the assembly of principles that, could, uh, that should guide human conduct. Whereas the scientific view aims, at least at this point, um, to document the changes in moral behavior and how brain regions uh, respond or interact uh, in, in, uh, to, to evoke, to, to enable uh, moral behavior. So this is uh, based on functional imaging in lesion studies. So this, let's put this 
the vision very clear because the, these are the studies that provide the major inferences in the major in the major dimensions of cognition <coughs> and behavior. So that's the aim of science to tease apart and to be reductionistic. There's no other way uh, than to be reductionistic, but also uh, with uh, being careful not to uh, get lost in the midst of the trees, because over reductionism, of course, is also a dangerous thing. The aim, in the end, is to better understand uh, our moral nature and to provide uh, alleviation for uh, neuropsychiatric disorders and other mental disorders which actually impair moral behavior and also impair, uh, put um, society at risk, for example, antisocial behaviors. So, for the whole um, past century, all, all the attention has been, you know, uh, the spotlight of morality has been the frontal lobes. In the famous case of Phineas Gage and then the, all the work by uh, Esdegir and Damasio uh, when, when they saw the EVR case more recently and, we, and, and uh, brought this discussion back to, to, the, to the realm of science. Um, so that's what was, that was our starting point to study morality with functional imaging. So can we uh, study morality with functional imaging? So just uh, a little bracket uh, about functional imaging. So a few words on that. In the past two decades, uh, functional imaging, especially fMRI, uh, it provided caused a tremendous um, advance in our understanding of several cognitive abilities and, uh, and morality included. So it's non-invasive and uh, allows for multiple uh, experimental designs and conditions and you can repeat experiments with not no risks for the volunteers. So this, this was a major um, development. So functional imaging and special fMRI, for those who are not familiar, is based on acquisition of, of series of images from the brain and over time. Uh, each, um, each set of, say, 30 slices over the brain is collected in, in about um, two seconds. So we, and then we repeat this over time. And during this time, we can perform tasks. And uh, with a signal we measure in the brain is actually this, the uh, oxygenation, oxygenation of the hemoglobin. So when, you have a, when I move my hands, my contralateral motor cortex is more active. And that, that causes a recruitment of arterial uh, bl br um, blood and the arterial blood um, has oxygenated uh, hemoglobin, which has a, a higher, slightly higher signal than the deoxygenated hemoglobin. And this can be picked up uh, by the correct, appropriate imaging sequences in, in fMRI. So in the end, we're, we're me measuring transient changes in oxygenation in the brain induced by, by what's, whatever task you're doing. So there is no real baseline state in the brain. That's very important. We're always comparing one condition to the other, although we can measure networks uh, and synchronization among regions in the resting states, as you might have heard. Um, but if you compare conditions uh, between them, there is no true baseline. We're always comparing one condition uh, to the other. So this is just a, a quick example of say uh, someone is looking at this cross, central cross, then they would see a screen like this. 
And after several trials, uh, repeating that, we do a statistical test with the signal, and we come up with these um, so-called activation maps. In this case, uh, localizing activation in the primary visual cortex. So that's the basis of fMRI. So that was the first study uh, we did um, on moral judgment. So that was our first take on, on um, mapping morality in, in the brain in a very crude way, very simple way, was just uh, asking people uh, in the scanner to make uh, silent, ment mentally judge statements like those, telephones never ring, uh, or statements like those, uh, they hug an innocent man, and compare what, what is different between them. So they have to r mentally judge that as right or wrong, uh, and then afterwards we compared the moral condition to the factual condition, and that's the first picture uh, we got from the group results. So this is activation on the anterior part of the frontal lobes, the so-called frontopolar cortex, which is actually one of the regions that is more developed in humans. Uh, so it has a, a huge expansion in our species compared, species compared to other primates. Um, we also found activation in other regions, um, say, for example, the anterior temporal region, as you can see there, and that's the upper side, the lateral part of the brain. At the time, we had no explanation for that, but it already told us that the story was not so simple as you know, the frontal lobe story uh, would say. Of course, these first studies, uh, they were uh, uncontrolled for several aspects. For example, uh, emotional valence was clearly different. It was higher in the moral condition than the, in the control condition. So further experiments uh, aimed to piece this apart. So we control them uh, in the next experience for emotional valence. Again, we find this temporal activation. In this case, uh, the region called the STS is a superior temporal sulcus. Uh, it's a multimodal region which integrates, uh, it's known to integrate several perceptual um, uh, channels, um, uh, modalities, into, to bring about, to, to, uh, for example, to the perception of body movements or gestures uh, engage this region. And we also got, again, uh, the ventral part of the frontal lobe when it compared uh, equivalent situations with equivalent emotional valence, but with, which differed in, in terms of moral content. Uh, just, I forgot to say that uh, our definition of moral saliency or moral content was based on the Kobe and Kohlberg definition uh, um, issues that are related to rights, responsibilities, or values. So we had a moral morality score for each kind of uh, um, stimulus. So we had ratings on that. Okay, so at this time, um, most, um, okay, it's still a uh, 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 well, widely, um, widely held belief that the frontal lobes they have to do only with executive or active functions. Uh, so one question that uh, was raised was that, are these other frontal lobes engaged just because you're making active moral judgments? You're you know, actively trying to discriminate or to weight these situations. So we, did, we designed this study, which was a passive, totally passive study, in which we showed pictures which were, which were previously uh, scored or rated 
one by um, uh, by a separate uh, set of subjects in terms of um, uh, moral content. So that's sets of pictures which have high moral content uh, and were negatively valent, uh, and also pictures which are evoked also negative emotions, but uh, has very uh, low, relatively low moral content. So we, we presented the, uh, these pictures to subjects, of course the neutral pictures as well, scrambled, and then just told them to pay attention to the pictures, and they, we showed them one after the other. Um, and what we got is that if we look at uh, pictures which are emotionally negative together, irrespective if they are uh, moral or non-moral, we get uh, bilateral amygdala responses and brainstem responses, all these base of the brain regions which respond to emotional arousal. But when we contrast directly uh, the moral pictures to the uh, unpleasant non-moral pictures, we get again GE10, frontal polar cortex, and the STS, the superior temporal cortex region, and also the anterior temporal lobe is not shown here. Uh, they are engaged. So this piece of, uh, piece of evidence actually started to tell us a different story about moral judgments, is that if you face a, moral, a, morally, a morally relevant or salient situation, your brain is already tuned to that as a network. It's, these regions are engaged uh, all together. In this study, we did also a connectivity analysis, and we, and we showed that um, this frontal region and the STS, and upper frontal regions, they are, they are more co connected to each other, functionally connected, uh, when you presented these pictures with moral contents. So we developed this, this idea of moral sensitivity that we are attuned, you know, we are actually like a radar uh, monitoring uh, with uh, our moral brain is active all the time. And of course, it's, it's surface uh, fluctuations over time, uh, depending if, if you detect, um, detect more relevant uh, issues. And then later on, I'll show that um, this architecture, of functional architecture of morality matches uh, what um, is being studied now as this resting state networks. Okay, so just to move on. So summarize, there were several studies uh, over the last decade, and, and all of them using, all of them reached very similar, they point to very similar arrangement or engagement or regions, irrespective of the type of test, was active test, passive test, if they use pictures, uh, simple moral judgments, difficult uh, moral dilemmas, and etc. So we have this uh, more uh, functional architecture of morality, which is extremely, it's remarkably stable. It's not actually task dependent. That's that's the take-home message. Or it's okay. So the next step was to organize this. Uh, so why? How are these regions? What do they do actually? So why they are, is it just you know it's a whole network, but each region must have a role and must have a, uh, a combination of role, uh, roles with the other regions. Uh, so we did a, a, a careful um, de in detail um, uh, revision of the literature, searching for um, cases in which patients developed uh, changes in moral behavior. Uh, and if you just, you know, just not looking at, at frontal lobes, for example, just 
looking for uh, lesions leading to uh, change in moral behavior. And the, what, do we, what do we get from that is that uh, it is far from, you know, it's, it's not the frontal lobes. So it's, um, there are a lot of, of, of impairments uh, uh, which are induced by, for example, anterior temporal lobe uh, damage, which is very common, for example, in frontal temporal dementia and also trauma, car accidents, for example. They damage the frontal lobe and also the anterior temporal lobes very often. Uh, and these cases develop very, sometimes very bizarre uh, types of social behavior, loss of empathy, and etc. And also uh, damage to small structures um, in the subcortical regions, such as the, uh, the septal region and hypothalamus, and etc. Uh, these regions are very delicate, and they involve in awareness as well. So. Uh, big lesions in there, of course, lead to death. But uh, when patients survive, when, or when they have capricious strategic lesions in there, they can develop extreme changes in, in moral behavior. So, for example, uh, violent assaults and anger bursts and a sexual activity which is absolutely inappropriate and etc. with tiny, tiny um, changes in these subcortical regions. So, Clearly, the story um, goes away from the frontal lobes at the seat of morality. So morality seems to be a distributed uh, function of the brain, but it's not just you know, everywhere. Uh, so here's a depiction of the regions for which we have uh, clear evidence, both from functional imaging and from lesion studies, uh, which are um, involved in moral behavior. Uh, so we can see that the frontopolar cortex um, the, the right dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is kind of less clear, and the medial and lateral optofrontal at the ventral region of the brain, these regions here, uh, and the anterior temporal cortex. That's uh, this. So, and of course, then the, the limbic regions, the subcortical uh, limbic uh, regions, including the septal area, in addition to the amygdala, hypothalamus, and the basal forebrain structures. So that seems okay. So this is a lot of the brain, but uh, if you look at the uh, regions uh, whose lesions do not lead to moral impairments, uh, it's a lot of the brain as well. So uh, one could say that uh, the emergence of morally uh, abnormal behaviors, they arise from uh, specialized uh, combination of lesions, not combination, but in special regions. It's not everywhere in the brain. Okay, so if we look now at what these regions, in, uh, which lead to moral impairments, what they are doing, we, can, we came up with a simplification scheme, so a very schematic thing, uh, but there are these four main components uh, in terms of the cognitive abilities, cognitive emotional abilities that these regions are important. So the green one, so perspective assessments, so uh, valueless uh, assessment of goals, assessment of future rewards, and etc. Uh, this here, conceptual social knowledge. So the, I forgot to say, so the perspective assessments Frontal lobes. Frontal lobes are absolutely important for, for us to enable us to think about tomorrow, what we're going to do, and to wait options in the future. 
conceptual social knowledge was a hypothesis at the time. We did experiments to, uh, to investigate this, but it's clear that anterior temporal lobes are important in conceptual social knowledge. Patients uh, which, uh, atrophy, with atrophy in these regions, they, they, they progressively lose their ability to discriminate <coughs> object categories, and they also lose social information, social knowledge. Um, then the more posterior regions, like the STS, superior temporal cortex, uh, they are they are they enable they represent actually percept perceptuals in sensory. So, for example, face, body expression, voice. They enable us to capture, for example, body posture and facial emotions very rapidly and integrate this into our behavior. And finally, but not less importantly, uh, the basic instinctive motivation emotions. Which, which are, we could say that it's free-floating anxiety or anger or attachments, pleasure or pain, uh, for which the limbic, the subcortical regions uh, are uh, absolutely fundamental. So just putting this back into the brain, we could um, uh, actually summarize this as a central motive state. That's an idea that Elliot Steller uh, came up in the 50s, uh, based on simulation of hypothalamic and, and neighboring regions, which if you stimulate electrically these regions, you can induce several types of emotional states, very strong ones, but they are free-floating. Free they have no objects, no, they, have, they are decontextualized. Uh, so the central motive states, aggression, anxiety, attachment, etc., cetera, uh, in the, in the subcortical regions. Then the social features and the social functional features uh, in the temporal lobe, and, and then the prefrontal cortex. And here we adopted Jordan Grafman's um, model of the prefrontal cortex, which he calls the structure event knowledge, uh, which is a representational model of the frontal cortex. Instead of being the frontal cortex being somewhat uh, a structure which is um, um, operating or um, uh, acting on knowledge represented in other areas only like a managerial thing or executive thing, it's actually representing information, but especially <coughs> sequential information. So we present um, uh, sequence of actions, abstracts or motoric actions. And all these things, all these regions, um, they must um, work together. So I'll just come back to that. So they must work, work together in a non-hierarchical way. They must be synchronized. So for a complex uh, more emotion, for example, or evaluation, you have to have you have to integrate these regions, and probably this is unproved. We need to seek evidence for that yet, but we suspect that this mechanism operates in the same way that uh, Wolf Singer proposed for, for example, for visual binding. Binding, you, if you have a perception, visual perception of motion and, and objects, and you know shape and motion at the same time, which occur in different brain posterior regions, but they are synchronized in the gamma band. So it's a temporal synchronization. Only electrophysiology can, can actually uh, tell us about this. But it's very likely that these regions uh, act together by temporal binding. Okay, so what are the implications of these outlines of evidence to, to our understanding of moral cognition? So we believe that they provide potentially an improvement uh, over these hierarchical models of, of control. 
uh, of top-down control or bottom-up control. I mean, such as, for example, somatic markers. So viscera putting up in, you know, inducing us to be in certain states, and then from there we react in certain ways. Or reason, the reason suppressing emotions and enabling us to act morally. So these classical hierarchical models, such as the MacLean model, uh, they were they are still very popular because they are uh, uh, they are very intuitive. Uh, so in these, for example, in this model, uh, we had this the more basic uh, region, the primitive brain or archipelagian, so the reptile brain, which is the emotional brain. And then we have a further cover in, say, the mammalian brain, uh, which allows, represented by the uh, limbic structures, we actually have the, the, actual, the emotions, not only the self-preservation mechanism. And then the cortical is, would be the rational, uh, and the cortex would actually control the beasts we have um, inside us in our limbic system. So we, can, we have to suppress these urges that come from the depths of our, our brain to, be, uh, to, act, uh, to act appropriately. So, uh, this view is actually wrong anatomically. You know, it's, it's not because of, you know, it's outside our discussion of morality, but the, the functional architecture of the brain and evolution of the brain doesn't work at all uh, in layers. So, um, what happens in, for example, in our, in the development of our species that uh, several nuclei, subcortical nuclei, which are considered to be primitive, they uh, grow together with the cortical structures. They grow, they grow like in radial, in radial, radial, uh, radial um, networks. They grow together. So there are, there are several elementary studies looking at uh, these uh, regions, subcortical regions, they, they grow in our species even uh, in, in uh, more than several cortical areas. So, so again, so uh, functional integration instead of top-down control uh, would be one possibility to ex better explain, of course this has been tested experimentally, to better explain our moral behavior as well as several other cognitive abilities. So it's just one example how uh, emotions like compassion could emerge. So if you um, suppose that you're visiting an orphanage and you see this sad girl, so then you activate uh, your STS because of the body posture and the her face, facial expression, etc. You can, you know, she is, for example, 10 years, 10 years old and uh, you can, um, you automatically engage uh, conceptual representations, for example, of um, helplessness and loneliness, which is abstract conceptual representations. In your frontal lobe, especially the poles, the frontal polar cortex, allows you to immediately um, think about the future of this girl. So, okay, the chances of adoption are small at this age. So, oh, that's the future of this, of this, of this child, <coughs> this child, and etc. And finally, uh, then you engage um, your subcortical regions, which uh, might enable you to feel attachment, feelings of attachment. So all these things happen together um, 
and they have this network activity which actually enables us to feel compassion. So there is no localization, but you have a combined activation. So I just uh, want to point to this uh, quickly. We are still you know, starting to do these kinds of experiments, but I think it's an, an interesting, um, an interesting uh, idea that uh, can be combined. Um, so there was a lot of research now showing that uh, several regions of the brain uh, depicted here, but this work was um, conducted by Marcus Rako, uh, showing these regions they are active when we are doing nothing, when we are just resting. Of course, we are never resting, we are just having our own inner thoughts, uh, but these networks are strongly engaged when you're doing this, and when, when, once you're required to do some, some specific task, these regions actually deactivate. So it's the evidence, uh, there's a lot of evidence for that. Turns out that these regions are exactly, or they are very, very close to the moral cognition network. So one could suppose that we are, you know, you, you, when you're in a relaxed state, and, you know, say walking or uh, not doing a specific task, uh, we are engaged, we engage as with these networks, and they enable us to be monitoring all the social reality and the moral implications. Um, and we have some. So, okay, just have this exercise. If you think about one of the best, happiest moments of your life or one of the worst or most sad episodes in your life. So what happens, and this is exactly what we did in this, in this study. So we studied 15 normal volunteers while they were um, uh, thinking about autobiographical Episodes, which are uh, related to family, related to, <coughs> to significant others, and either uh, positive or negative episodes emotionally. So what we see up there, the blue, is what, uh, the regions of the of the brain which are active in the resting <coughs> state compared to a seven back. Seven backs like counting, uh, subtracting sevens from uh, say one hundred. And it's a mathematical task and it takes a lot of resources, cognitive resources. So if you can compare rest to, to counting back, that, the, these are the regions we get. However, if you compare um, uh, when you entertain uh, pleasant autobiographical memories, that's, that's what you get. The red thing and the pink thing, which is the overlapping with the resting condition. And here is the, uh, the negative memories. So it's, it's actually the same set of regions. It's very similar. There's a small difference between positive and negative, uh, but there's a great overlap in these affiliative, in this case, affiliative emotional states in the resting brain. I'll skip through this, and then I move to the neurobase of altruistic decisions. So these are more, ex more recent experiments. So one question would, would be, was at the time. So we have this more cognition networks. It's engaged. It's it's one thing. I mean, it's a distributed thing. It doesn't matter uh, what kind of emotion you're feeling. Uh, it's just the same sort of thing. So we designed this study to evoke uh, specific moral emotions. We designed scenarios, scenarios which could evoke, for example, guilt, 
your mother calls you one night telling she, she was not feeling well and you did not take her seriously. The next day she died. Okay, so this evokes guilt in most people, this in, in, in an imagery task, uh, or statements, you know, um, um, inducing indignation. We have also compassion, embarrassment. Um, the, the, um, the, our, what we learned from this study was there was no specific signature for any moral emotion. Uh, but if you, you put together prosocial moral emotions, emotions that um, enable us to act more prosocially, uh, including guilt, compassion, and embarrassment, to care about our mistakes or prevent mistakes uh, towards others, we see that the, the anterior PFC, which is the frontopolar cortex, is highly activated in these emotions, as well as the superior vestias region. Again, the same regions that we see in moral judgments. However, when we look at uh, other blaming emotions, such as indignation and disgust, uh, we see activation of the lateral, lateral orthofrontal cortex, which, which is a region that is highly involved in, um, in for example, in disgust, and uh, even perceptual disgust. If you feel bad taste, you engage the lateral orthofrontal cortex. So cluster, clusters of emotions, of social emotions, evoke uh, different patterns. But there are some, if you cluster um, uh, them differently, we, then we can find commonalities. So, for example, if you look at empathic emotions, guilt and compassion, these emotions, what they, do they have in common? Both of them are about others. We care about, I mean, we care about the well-being of others. So, when you look at them, you see these uh, basal forebrain hypothalamic regions, which at the time we had trouble to interpret, but the story came came out more clear in more recent experiments, as I show. So I, I, I'll show this. Um, this is a work by my colleague Roland Zahn. And uh, the purpose of this study was to look at these anterior temporal region, which, which we didn't have uh, much evidence for that. What is this anterior temporal cortex doing exactly? So his uh, idea was that it was storing uh, some kind of social conceptual knowledge. But for that, uh, he used uh, this kind of uh, experiments. So people were presented with social, with, um, social functional concepts. Uh, for example, stingy generals, coward, brave. And compared to other concepts, other abstract concepts, which are animal functions. Useful, nutritious, dangerous, poisonous. So what we get is this anterior temporal, superior anterior temporal cortex. So this region seems to be specialized to, for these, say, traits or social concepts, which, which are very important for our ability to judge situations in an abstract way. So this is a further study in which we had the same uh, social concepts, but then in the context of action. So you acted stingily or generously towards your best friend. So when you do that, you get, again, the same activity on the, on the on, uh, to your temporal cortex here, because it's semantic, social semantics, it, and it doesn't care about what, what kind of emotion is involved. However, if you look then at, uh, on the, at, at the limbic, so the subcortical and the frontal regions, then these regions are specific for, uh, they, they react differently for different moral emotions uh, evolved, such as guilt, 
and indignation, as we saw before, but with a, with a more precise design. Okay, I skipped through this, and I moved to, the, to this study, the charitable donation study. So, so far, we're only talking about um, uh, moral uh, cognition studies using abstract scenarios and or, or pictures uh, and things like that. So the aim of this study was actually to put morality you know, on the rolls, and so to have some reality on that, even in the, in the, in the context of, in the very artificial context of an MRI scanner. So in this study we had people, volunteers, um, uh, recruited, and they could win, they would, they uh, were told that uh, their decisions could could lead to monetary gains for themselves. If it was real money, they could, uh, they could earn as much as $128. They made these decisions uh, anonymously, and they were told that they could keep all the money for themselves, or they could donate, depending on the past trial, uh, to different causes. And we, on purpose, we chose causes, some of them that could be... Uh, um, very controversial. For example, uh, abortion, euthanasia, uh, you know, armed gun control, we had National Rifle Association, for example, and things like that. So by doing that, we, we wanted to see if people would sacrifice money to help uh, certain causes uh, or to oppose certain causes. The, the, design, the test design allowed us also to look at op opposition because depending on the payoffs, if they wanted to keep the money, they uh, money would be uh, donated by the funds to the organization. So they are, they also could sacrifice uh, to oppose costly opposition, for example, or they could donate costly, for example, or they can just win money. There were some trials that the organization didn't lose or win; they could just win money. So these participants. On average, they donated 40% um, of the whole stake. That ranged from 20 to 80%, a big range across people. Uh, but uh, these are the functional imaging results. So what we see, this is called a conjunction analysis. So what we see here are the brain regions which are active. Um, either when they are winning money with no consequences for the, for the organization, uh, and or when they are donating money. So we see here, BTA is a ventral, ventral tegmental area, is the source of the dopaminergic neurons to the ventral striatum, which is region, this region here. So this is basically the reward system of our brains. So when people win money, that's, everybody knew that. Uh, there were several studies at the time using financial rewards. Uh, you activate the reward system, but this study was the first to demonstrate that when you are donating money, you activate also the, the reward system of the brain. So, is helping only like a reward response, or do we see certain uh, specificity in brain systems? So that's that was done by comparing directly the donation condition to the uh, to the reward condition. Uh, and then by doing that, we saw activation in this very deep area, the subgenital cortex, and that tiny spot there, back there, which is the septal regions. So these regions, they are, they are uh, 
they are very intimately related to um, um, bonding behaviors in several species. They are very dense. They, they have very dense um, uh, presence of receptors for oxytocin, vasopressin. So they are related to very basic attachment mechanisms. So what this tells us is that probably the basic attachment mechanism that you know, allows several species mothers to attach to, to, to pups, for example, or, or, or pair bonding, they act in our species to allow us to attach to very complex causes and, and principles or even ideologies. So when people oppose situations, then they, they engage in lateral orthofrontal cortex, which was the region that we saw that's in, involved in disgust and in indignation. So that's the correlate. So uh, it tells us that the, it's a culturally mediated social aversion. We engage the same systems as aversion to bad tastes, for example. And when we just look at costly decisions, if you're either if you're opposing or you're donating, and then in this situation we get back the the frontal polar cortex that we saw before for moral judgments. Uh, so this region is more strongly engaged when you have to make a real decision, uh, which is costly. Okay, so. This other experiment, uh, done by my colleague uh, Frank Kruger, uh, was a neuroeconomic experiment. So I want to show this quickly because I think it's very informative uh, in this topic. Uh, here we had two people interacting, each one in a different scanner, and they were doing like a prisoner's dilemma game, uh, but it was iterative, so each one you know, made, made decisions the first time that the other one could uh, reciprocate the cooperation uh, and etc. Then they switch the roles, and uh, okay. So basically, to su summarize, when we analyze the patterns of interaction between the subjects, uh, the vast majority of the pairs, 22 pairs of people, uh, cooperated most of the time. There were only two pairs who actually started to fight, and actually they, they lost all, all the money. They, they started to fight and punish each other. Each other. Okay, so we discovered these two, two subjects from the analysis, and what we see here is uh, the people in general cooperated because they took profits from this cooperation. However, uh, there were two different parents. About half of them uh, developed a kind of conditional cooperation, like a they only cooperated if the if the you know if the gains of the specific interaction uh, were uh, were good for both. So in sub certain instances, the payoff for the first decision maker was very high, and and this person defected. Still, they were able to pick up cooperation again. And the the other the other half had unconditional cooperation. They cooperated every single time, irrespective of the bonus um, involved in the, in the given trial. So here we show that what the regions the, of the brain which are most um, synchronized or co-activated in their brains when they are making cooperation decisions. So the behavior is exa exactly the same. So they are cooperating with the other one, but uh, these are the unconditional cooperators or the trust-based cooperators. And here is, are the, the conditional cooperators. So what we see here, although they are making the same decision to cooperate, 
these guys are, are activating the reward system, the VTA regions. Uh, so probably their focus on the expected gains, financial gains. Whereas the other ones are activating the septal region, which is the region related, uh, which is related to bonding mechanisms. So, so in this case, the brain is tell telling us something that cannot be observed in the behavior in, in a given trial. So this is more recent data. This is still unpublished data, but we wanted to look. We are very interested now in the septal region. So it, it, it really seems to, to, to be a core uh, region uh, to enable us to feel uh, for others, a very basic region. And uh, in this study, we had scenarios which are affiliative. They describe uh, you interacting in, in positive or in negative ways towards your kin. And we had scenarios, control scenarios, which are also social and emotional, uh, but they don't involve kin uh, interactions. And, uh, and the results, I just want to show this quickly, we see very strong activations uh, here in, the, in this, this, this region of the hypothalamus and septal region. So this, this region is, is really involved in these kinds of uh, uh, affiliative behaviors or affiliative uh, feelings in this case. So we got supportive uh, data from lesion, from this lesion study. This study was done uh, with a, a sample from the NIH. Uh, so these are patients with the behavioral type of frontotemporal dementia. This patient. Typically these patients, they, they have a dementia which starts earlier than the Alzheimer's one. Starts uh, on the 40s and 50s or 60s. Uh, in the typical, uh, they typically develop impaired social functioning. They start to shoplift, for example. They start to to have inappropriate uh, sexual behavior. They start to you know, start with teasing behaviors, and uh, that's the first manifestation of this disorder. Uh, so we studied a sample of 21 patients with these, and we were interested to see interested to see whether we could get uh, evidence for these moral emotions being affected in a selective manner um, uh, depending on the, the topography of the, of the atrophy, uh, in this case the hypometabolism using PET imaging. So what we see here are the regions which are parametrically hypometabolic in relation to uh, impaired prosocial emotions. So the, the task involves showing the scenarios as I described before, and then in this case they have to pick which emotion matches they would feel in that specific situation. So the more impaired they are in impaired, uh, the more impaired they are in prosocial emotions such as guilt and embarrassment and, and compassion or pity, the more uh, hypometabolism they have in the frontal cortex in the septal regions. And differently, the more impaired they are in indignation and disgust, the more atrophy they have in the amygdala in the dorsal medial region of the cortex. So we can really discriminate these networks on the basis of, um, of this dysfunction in these patients. Okay. Uh, I want to mention psychopathy. That's another um, kind of um, subject we've been studying. Uh, we, in our case, <clears throat> in, in Rio, it's very dangerous to study uh, patients, uh, you know, um, criminal individuals in, in prisons because, you know, the system is not so safe as you might imagine. 
so we decided, uh, my colleague uh, Ricardo de Oliveira Souza is a neuropsychiatrist, but he sees this patient in a psychiatric institution. These individuals, <clears throat> uh, they come normally, you know, generally they are brought from their families because they are, you know, they are uh, destroying the family, they are uh, destroying the financial resources, creating a lot of problems. And at some point, the families, okay, you have to have a psychiatric consultation, then they, have, they come to consultation. So these are the, the, uh, what we call the community psychopaths. Uh, of course, not all of them are psychopaths. Many of them have other psychiatric disorders, but then we have a, the assessment and uh, we have a, a sample, uh, an increasing sample of these uh, subjects. Of course, they leave at some point, they never uh, stay. But we had the opportunity to study um, a number of them. And psychopathy um, is, has been studied before by several investigators using uh, manual tracing of of regions, especially the frontal cortex and the and the hippocampus, and so most most of the studies show volumetric, small volumetric decreases in the frontal cortex, but overall their brains look pretty pretty much normal. So our aim here was was to use a more advanced technique at the time, which was the voxel based morphometry, to look at the whole brain uh, instead of selecting regions. Uh, and it turns out that the regions here, the, uh, the regions in yellow and, and red are the regions which are reduced. They have cort corte cortical um, reductions in these regions relative to a paired um, sample of normal controls. And the, the reduction, <coughs> the degree of abnormality in these regions in the frontal from the polar cortex and the STS is related to, uh, to the severity of their uh, scores in the psychopathy checklist. So there seemed to be a, a, a monotonic relationship between the atrophy and how, uh, you know, how psychopathic they are. So that's the come to the last part of my talk. Uh, so I'll just speak about a few a few slides on uh, brain coding. So the parent the, the, uh, parent recognition methods in functional and structural imaging. Um, and the methods to classify patients and classify brain states using these more modern uh, uh, techniques, algorithms. Um, <clears throat> so the first, just a little bit of, uh, of the theoretical grounds of this. So discrimination, if we seek to, to, to find discriminative information um, using multivariate tools. So instead of looking at one voxel and comparing, say, populations or conditions, we're looking at the combined effects of, of several voxels in the brain using uh, two main methods, uh, the linear, linear discrimination analysis and the support vector machines. There are a number of researchers have, have been doing a, a fantastic work on this in the past few years, uh, trying to, for example, Look at a representation of objects. They can do like brain reading and the, decode, for example, if you're thinking about a hammer or if you're thinking about a house and etc. Um, and we started to use these techniques actually to, in the sample of psychopaths to try to see if the structural images could uh, 
be used to discriminate between psychopaths and normal controls. It turns out that we reach uh, about 80% of, of uh, sensitivity and specificity in telling apart a normal control from a psychopath. Of course, this is not good enough for clinical applications, uh, but it's, it has ethical implications. And it, has, it already t tells that uh, these kinds of uh, more, uh, imaging um, uh, can be used for a prediction and, and will have um, a lot of implication in the future. Okay, and now <clears throat> I jump to the neurofeedback part of the story. Uh, so this is the thing that we are most interested in, interested in now is can we um, train, um, say, uh, emotional, complex motion, emotional states in the brain? So can, can you make people train this uh, but, but having some objective marker in the brain? So in this study, this is, this is actually preliminary data that I'm showing here, but we had, uh, we had uh, volunteers uh, choosing, picking as I, as I showed the data in the data before, choosing um, uh, autobiographical memories uh, from their own lives, of course, autobiographical, uh, which could be pleasant or unpleasant, uh, very relevant ones, and they had to engage in these memories voluntarily. We just cued them pleasant or unpleasant, and uh, also asking them to think about affiliative uh, memories, because we are interested in the affiliation networks. Um, and we also had autobiographical neutral episodes, and what we did is that um, we collected the data, the subject is in the scanner, we tell them, okay, think about, we project their pleasant and they think about it, this pleasant memories, <coughs> unpleasant, and, and so on, uh, mixed up with the neutral ones. Then uh, um, we develop a software system which can, which can do this very quickly. They can um, uh, align the images, do a, a general linear model, calculate the difference between the tasks, do a feature selection map, and then train those voxels which survive this statistics. Uh, with a support vector machine with some multivariate algorithm. So in the end, what we have is, is a, uh, a trained uh, uh, set of, of, of a network which can be used for prediction. And this is done in a couple of minutes. So as, long, as soon as one finished the acquisition period, this run, uh, then two minutes later, we start again, but this time, uh, we show people, we show the subject these rings here. And uh, the distorted ring means that the person is, uh, is engaging in the, in the state which is actually not, it's not, it's not discriminating between the two states. It's, you know, it's distorted. And, and the more the person um, achieves the desirable, I mean, the, the, the goal uh, states, could be the pleasant state or the unpleasant state, this ring becomes more perfect, so it becomes more smooth. So it's, it's a very interesting um, uh, feeling, actually. If you're in the scan, you can, you can see that ring, and it moves according to your uh, imagination of the scenarios. And uh, I can show you... Um, okay, that's actually my own brain. I was thinking here, this is my, our son. Uh, so Francisco was in the hospital, so as imagine the scene was very stressful at this time, and then the pleasant one 
just for, for playing, uh, he was looking at his own brain activity in the study that actually he did. Uh, so these two scenarios, and then I show a little movie uh, for you to to give you an idea of how can you observe. Um, Okay, instead of showing you know, brain activity, which is very complicated, we can show, we can transform very complex uh, brain patterns in, in interpretable uh, data. This is a, an earlier version of the new feedback uh, system we had, and then you see that the, the, the red thing in the orthofrontal cortex is starting to build up. So here the subject is imagining these uh, affiliative scenarios. Uh, and next you see actually the, the current implementation we have. So this is unpleasant, it's projected backwards because it's projected to the subject in, in the scanner. The subject only sees uh, this screen here. So as you see the circle, uh, the ring becomes, you know, in this case, perfect. That's the best SVM projection. So you, we can monitor, so the subject can actually have a feedback on their own uh, performance in the task and potentially train to achieve desirable uh, states. So uh, I believe this is a very interesting tool that can, can be used potentially for any kind, uh, any kind of emotional states or morally relevant uh, states, attitudes, and, and so on. Okay, just to conclude, Yeah, that's Eduardo, our other son. Of course, there are easier ways to reach these states, but we don't have objective markers. So the, the big uh, advantage of any such method is that we might have um, you know, very objective markers. And on the top of that, we can train subjects to, to reach uh, psychological states based on other populations. So if, for example, experts in, in uh, reaching very positive emotional states or, or tranquility or meditative states, for example. We, have, we can have these goal brain patterns and we can train subjects to try to get to the same uh, levels and have objective markers. So to conclude, uh, in the last 10 years, um, uh, it was found that there is a stable network of neural components which are engaged uh, in, in moral sentiments, in moral judgments, <coughs> in uh, decision-making tasks, in a, in a, with a vo big variety of tasks, uh, types of tasks and stimuli. Um, the integration, we believe that integration of cortical and subcortical networks can better accommodate uh, uh, how our brain operates, especially in terms of moral cognition. But that leads us beyond these uh, Cognition, emotional dualism, and suppression of one uh, to the other, and it might help, uh, help be helpful in understanding more complex motivations and, and emotions. Uh, we find overlapping networks, uh, which represents moral sentiments, values, and altruistic decisions. Although uh, we are, uh, we can also see uh, some differences between these uh, things. That's I think is a big challenge now is to find descriptive signatures for these complex states. Uh, we found that the septal region, the frontopolar cortex, the general cortex, are key, very key regions for the prosocial uh, emotions, and I would say for uh, morality. Um, 
pattern recognition methods and neurofeedback, uh, they are able to predict uh, categories of, of, of patients, for example, uh, and they are a window into the subjective emotional states. We can potentially train several types of states, such as gratitude, for example, determination, um, tolerance, and so on, or decrease of anxiety. And our growing ability to predict uh, behavior, of course, has uh, deep implications um, for diagnostic treatment of neuropsychiatric disorders and also uh, legal implications, ethical implications. Um, tailoring better behaviors uh, using all sorts of manipulation, pharmacology, surgical interventions, neurofeedback. Uh, can, you know, it, it's fundamental that we understand uh, the organization of, of uh, these complex neurocognitive um, networks. And applications are, as you might imagine, uh, uh, very can be very wide, uh, wide uh, including you know, policymakers treating couples, for example, couples' problems, or uh, organizational psychology, and, uh, and so on. So, I just like to thank. This is a, a big group effort. Studies are very complex, so we depend on, on a lot of people working together, uh, from the computational side, from the neurological and uh, MRI. And uh, I was thank my all of my collaborators from different um, uh, places, especially uh, Jean Sato and Volanzan. Uh, these are our people from the lab, from the institute, and I. I leave you with some nice pictures of Lagoa in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you.